If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26 and 27 will be our text this afternoon. This will be the the last in our series in Isaiah for a little bit. We'll take a four-week break for sure and go through a series on stewardship. Joshua will kick that off for us next week, and then Trevor will preach the following, then myself, and then Joel. So the elders will be uh, teaching on stewardship of different uh, aspects of our lives. Um, and so we'll be taking a break from Isaiah. I think it's a good time to take a break. I told my wife I've been struggling to work through Isaiah, and some of it is just, it's preaching is a long, it's good to have a break, it's good to have the elders help out, but I also said, I think Isaiah is just hard, it's just a hard book to fully understand, and so we've been in some deep waters, and um, it'll be good to set Isaiah aside for a little bit, and Lord willing, we'll come back to it probably after Easter, um, and pick up where we've left off, but for today, we are in Isaiah 26 and 27. Last week, we entered into the, the final section of this second major part of the vision of Isaiah. The oracles against the nations, if you remember, began back in chapter 13 against Babylon. And here in chapters 24 through 25, or 24 through 27, we find what people call the apocalypse of Isaiah. Uh, after 10 oracles against specific nations, we looked last week at chapter 24, which has the judgment of the whole earth in view. It tells us that the song of the city of meaninglessness will one day be silenced. And because of that, these four chapters then serve as an invitation not to sing that song, but rather to sing the song of praise that will never cease. That was our big idea last Sunday, and it will be our big idea again this week. Sing the song of praise that will never cease. We're called to, to sing the song of the city of God that will never be silenced. It's a song in chapter 25 that called us to praise God for his mighty deeds, for his gracious rescue, and for his total victory. And as these chapters as a whole highlight the glory of God, we see that this, this ceaseless song of praise is to be sung to God and to God alone. He alone deserves praise. So as we think again about this call to sing the song of praise that will never cease, the emphasis this week, I think, is, should be on this idea that God alone is worthy of our praise. So if you want kind of a sub-main uh, idea to sing the song of praise that will never cease, you could say God alone is worthy of our praise. My kids are almost always very grateful for dinner. It's a unique grace in their lives. Uh, as we're eating, very often one of them will say, thanks mom and dad for, for this dinner, it's really good. Because it usually is. Um, and others will chime in and say, yeah, thanks mom and dad. But sometimes I, I feel a bit guilty about saying you're welcome. Um, often I will help with cooking, or at least I'll help with getting things to the table. But there are times... Um, when I should say, you should just thank your mom for this dinner because she went to the store and bought it, she cooked it, and she put it on the table and I had absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, she and she alone deserves praise and thanks. 
And as we think about what God has done in salvation and what he's going to do in the future and the redemption of the whole world, we're called to sing this song of praise that will never cease. And we're called to sing it to God and God alone. Because God alone can save us and God alone can redeem this world. Thinking about that, let's rewind in our study in Isaiah just a bit and remember that Isaiah, one of the overarching questions that Isaiah is asking is whether or not God's people who are sinful can become the city of God that would honor God. Can can they become Mount Zion of chapter 2? Can they become the new Jerusalem of chapter 4? Will they always be a vineyard that doesn't produce fruit or can they be a vineyard that produces fruit unlike the one in chapter five? Can God's people be redeemed and be changed? And there's hope throughout Isaiah. One of the major portions of hope is in chapter six. You remember that vision that Isaiah has of God. Isaiah is undone by his sin in the presence of a holy God. He sees that that God only can purify his unclean lips and the unclean lips of his people. God alone can do it which means that God's people must not work harder or seek refuge in the nations of these oracles or anywhere else, but rather they should be people devoted to faith in God and God alone because God alone can save them and make them his people. And so chapters 13 through 23 have shown us over and over again that the nations are false and worthless refuges. Don't trust in them. Only God can save his people. And the response we're called to is faith. Trust in God alone. Faith in the Father is the only solid foundation in our lives. We shouldn't trust anything else. And this then shines forth in these final chapters of praise. We see clearly the the glory of God and the need of faith. And those two things go hand in hand. God is shown to be supremely, supremely able to rescue his people. He is the only one that can make us the new Jerusalem. He's the only one that can make us Mount Zion. He's the only one that can make us a fruitful vine. And how's he going to do it? He's going to do it when we trust in him alone. Faith uniquely glorifies God because it says, I can't do anything but trust that you can do everything. And so this, this uh, I, I want us to think about these chapters in terms of, of praising God for what he alone can do. Some of what he does is present, some is future. But as we praise him in the present, we're looking to the future. We see that our, our lives are to be lived for his glory alone to be lived by faith that glorifies him alone and a faith that will one day glorify him forever. My hope is that we would be strengthened in faith. I think that's what Isaiah keeps wanting us to do, be strengthened in our faith. But not only our faith, but also maybe our wonder at what Christ has done and what he will do. A wonder that would fill our hearts and our daily lives, a wonder that overflows in songs and lives of of praise to God alone. So let's begin by reading chapter 26. This is more of a song of praise for salvation that God has brought. Uh, For Isaiah, it may have been partially a song of praise for Judah's deliverance from some of their present enemies, but for them and for us, it's also pointing to this greater deliverance that Jesus, the Messiah, has brought and will bring. Isaiah 26, beginning in verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
He has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He, set, he lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done all have done for us all our works. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress, they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its stains. It's slain. We're to sing the song of praise that will never cease. And this is that song. So what are we supposed to sing? And why should we sing to God alone? First, we sing to God alone because the Lord alone can keep us safe. The Lord alone can keep us safe. This is in chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. The Lord alone can keep us safe. Looking through those oracles before this chapter, we, we see Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Tyre, and others, and none of them could keep God's people safe. Not one of them. None of them should be trusted, either for their military might or their economic power. Rather, the Lord is the one stronghold who can keep us safe. He is the city of strength in contrast to the lofty city of verse 5. He is the only fortress that we can run into and be secure. Verse 1 shows us that, that salvation, security, and peace are not ours because we've earned them, but because we're trusting in the Lord alone. In verse 2, who, who comes to the gates and finds security? It's the one who keeps faith. And who finds perfect peace in verse 3? It's the one who trusts the Lord. And because of this, Isaiah gives us a command. He doesn't give us many commands, but verse 4 gives us a command. What's that command? It's the command he's been giving us indirectly throughout the book. 
he says to all of us, he says, trust the Lord. Why? Because he is an everlasting rock. He is a rock who will never fail us. Trust the Lord. He alone can keep us safe. To trust the Lord, we have to humble ourselves. And verse five reminds us that pride and faith are mutually exclusive. The lofty city of the world that refuses to trust is going to be brought to dust, we are told. And according to verse six, the victorious ones, the ones that are kept safe by the Lord, the ones that will trample over the prideful lofty city, they're not the powerful. Who are they? It's the poor and the needy who trample over all of these mighty nations. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones who see their need and who run to the Lord for protection because he alone can keep us safe. He alone can bring salvation. He alone can bring security and peace. Do you lack peace? What are you seeking it in? Because God alone can give you perfect peace. Do you feel overwhelmed by the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do you feel overwhelmed by your own enemies, by your own thoughts, by your own failures and fears? God invites us to run into him by faith, to find refuge in Jesus who saves us from sin and death. We are to sing a song of praise that will never cease and we sing it to the Lord alone because the Lord alone can keep us safe. Second, we praise him and sing to him alone because the Lord alone can satisfy our souls. This is verses seven through nine. The Lord alone can satisfy our souls. I don't think there's any doubt that we're all searching for joy and satisfaction in this life. I think sometimes we want to pretend like we're not for some reason. We think that that desire might be wrong, that we should just be content or that we should get over our longing for satisfaction. And yet there's something about this longing for satisfaction and the fact that we can never fully find it that points to the fact that we've been created for another world, that we've been created for a a deeper satisfaction than this world can provide, which is why we're always in the end disappointed by the things that we think will give us lasting joy. Friends and spouses will let us down. Drugs and alcohol will wear off. That vacation you've been planning, it's not going to be as great as you thought. It's not going to satisfy because you'll just want to take another one once it's done. Your new job, it's not going to fulfill you completely. All of that's because we've been created for a different world and we've been created for a joy that only God can give us. As followers of Christ, we're constantly needing to seek to be satisfied in the Lord alone, to allow the, the gifts that he gives us to find their ultimate joy in him as the giver of those gifts. We, we taste this now and one day the, the yearning and the desires of our souls will be satisfied for all eternity and we'll rest in the presence of God and we'll be fully satisfied we fully filled with joy. I was thinking about these themes and uh, the other night our, the guys from our small group were together and Jake brought up this article from John Piper. Uh, it's, it was about, in, in it, he was trying to help people wrestle with the fact that we all want to find our joy in Christ if we're followers of Christ, but, but sometimes we don't. It's hard to do that. It's hard to find your joy in Christ. We struggle to find the, our full satisfaction in Jesus. And in one part of that answer, this article quoted C.S. Lewis, and as only Lewis could say, he said this. He says that joy is the experience, quote, of an unsatisfied desire 
which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Now, I'll read it one more time, which won't be enough. But joy is the experience of an unsatisfied desire, which in itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. If that doesn't make sense, maybe this will be helpful. Piper explains, he says this. In other words, the taste of the desired in that desire is better than any other satisfaction. I think he's right when he says that on earth, we will never have an experience of joy in God that is not composed mainly of desiring. In other words, only in God's immediate presence in heaven or in the new age is there fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Even the things that bring us joy now, in some sense, we're still desiring greater joy. That doesn't mean we don't seek joy in Christ now. We do, but it means that all earthly joys will in some way be unsatisfactory. So seek joy now in Christ, but we also yearn for it in the night and we earnestly seek it, as is said here. We earnestly seek It says in verse nine, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. God's name and his desire are the desire of our soul, or name and his remembrance are the desires of our our soul. And we taste that in some way now. We taste it in its purest form when we taste it in Christ, but we're also waiting for the day when we finally know what it means to be satisfied in Christ, when we are, are fully filled with the joy of the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Praise the Lord. We praise him because he alone can keep us safe, because he alone can satisfy our souls. We praise him because the Lord alone can open blind eyes. Verses 10 and 11, the Lord alone can open blind eyes. Verses 9 and 10 speak of of something that isn't really apparent on the surface. They tell us that the, the wicked are not going to learn about righteousness without the judgment of God in the earth. You see that at the end of verse 9, for when your judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. So there's a grace in God's justice on sin that allows people to see their need to turn and to trust in him alone. We know this as as parents. One of the roles as a parent is to correct and discipline your children because if you don't correct and discipline them, they'll never change. They'll never know what's right and what's wrong, right? Uh, If you don't uh, at work get an annual review, you don't know where you need to improve. And so too, the justice of God exposes our sin and shows us that we need to come to Christ. And yet we know that many, even in light of God's wrath and justice, don't see his righteousness. They don't see their need of salvation. In the blindness of our sin, we consider all the signs of judgment and rather than trust the Lord alone, what do we do? We grope around in the dark. We seek our own righteousness. We trust in other sources of righteousness. We trust in things other than the Lord. Trust in ourselves. And because we're in that state, we know that only God can open our eyes. Only God can cause his judgment to not lead us to rejecting him, but rather to lead us to faith and to a righteousness that comes by faith. This is the gift of regeneration that God gives us, the blessing of new eyes and a new heart that can see and can feel our sinfulness so that we don't kick against God's justice, but instead we turn to him. We seek salvation in him alone. Otherwise, we will just push against him. 
Jesus opens our eyes graciously to our sin, just as the, he opened the eyes of people that were physically blind. And he's the only one who can open the way of salvation by taking the punishment that we deserve. In his perfection, he is, he is the substitute sacrifice for us and our once blind eyes look to him and him alone for grace. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. The Lord alone can open blind eyes. We find grace through his death, but we also find grace through his righteous life. That's verse 12, I think. It points to this idea that we're called to praise the Lord because the Lord alone can do good works. The Lord alone can do good works. Verse 12, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. I love that. There's a, there's a common grace in the world that means while people are unable to do anything morally good, they still act in ways that bless others, okay? So, and yet the reality is that nothing that we do has the ability to save us. Our goodness cannot, as it says here, ordain peace for us. Isaiah, as Isaiah says, the, the Lord alone does all our works. His, his righteousness before the Father is what we are given in Christ, a righteousness apart from the law that comes through faith. When we trust the Lord alone, he saves us from the wrath to come and then he fills us with the righteousness we could never do on our own. This transformation means that we who are in Christ are now able to do the good works prepared beforehand for us, not in our strength, but as we rely on his spirit and allow him allow his, Him to, to bear the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Before Christ, we could do nothing good. And therefore, we're saved by Christ alone because he has done all our works for us, it says. But now that we're in Christ, we're enabled to do good works through the power of the Spirit that's within us. And yet even in that, who's doing the good? All our works are still in God. We're called simply to abide in him and to allow his spirit to work in and through us. We praise the Lord because the Lord alone can keep us safe. The Lord alone can satisfy our souls. The Lord alone can open blind eyes. The Lord alone can do good works. And fifth, the Lord alone can defeat death. The Lord alone can defeat death. I think this is the broad theme of Verses 13 through 19. If you haven't noticed, there's way more in these verses than what I'm saying. But this is maybe the broad theme of verses 13 through 19. In verses 13 through 15, we see the difference between all the leaders of Israel and all those who had oppressed God's people and God. And it's that they all died and their names were remembered no more. Did you notice that litany? They are dead, verse 14 says. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. They are remembered no more. Do you know the name of the Pharaoh of Egypt during the Exodus? It depends on whether or not Cecil B. DeMille's right, right? I don't know if he is or not. No one really, possibly some people know. Do, do you know any uh, kings of Babylon or Tyre or Assyria? Maybe you might be able to name one or two, but... For the most part, their names are like the dust that you wipe off the mantle of history. They are erased from, remem from remem remembrance. They are, they're gone. Nobody knows who they are. But the Lord's name endures 
and his people have increased. They see that in in verse 15, his people are increasing. God has chosen the, the most unlikely people, the lowly, and he increases their strength and their influence. All these nations are scattered, and yet God's people fill the earth so that he alone is glorified. Not only does he make his people great in the earth, but he also makes them victorious over death. I think verses 18 and 19 are unique in the Old Testament in how clearly they speak about resurrection, of the, of the fact that the Lord alone can defeat death. Look at that. We, we were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to win. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. God can make us victorious over the final enemy of our souls, and he's done it through Jesus' death and resurrection, so that we who dwell in the dust can sing for joy. It's easy to grow grow callous to that, isn't it? So don't. God in Christ has defeated death. We will all die, but in Christ, we will all rise again with new bodies to everlasting life. Death one day will die. And we who are in Christ will live forever. The Lord alone can do that. The Lord alone can defeat death. And so he deserves praise and worship. I think verses 20 through 21 serve in some ways as a close to this chapter and maybe as a transition to the next. Uh, They call us to to trust in and to wait on the Lord. They kind of echo that those first six verses about coming and coming into the the city that is God and And resting in him, you see that in verse 20, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed away. God is going to come in punishment on the earth, but his children are invited to come inside and to find shelter. Remember, one of the background texts to this is is Genesis 6 through 9 and the flood narrative. And we're reminded about how Noah and his family went into the ark and then God shut the door. Why? So that when the storm came, they would be spared. And that seems to be at least part of the picture here. We might also think about how the children of Israel put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over them and spare their firstborn sons. And that's the kind of refuge that God is for us. He is going to judge sin in the world, but he locks us up in the ark that is Jesus. He keeps us safe because he's the lamb of God. The blood of Jesus placed on us through faith saves us from the wrath to come. We rest in him. Trust that the judgment will not come because it's fallen on Christ. From there, the the future comes into clear view in chapter 27. Uh, All four of these chapters call us to to sing now for the salvation that the Lord brings, but they're also in large part looking to to a future day when God's glory fills the earth. And in that, they're, they're reminding us that all of history is driving towards this day when God alone will be glorified. Everyone else will be laid in the dust and God will be lifted up and honored and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Barry Webb says this, the formula in that day runs like a refrain through these chapters and it is full of the certainty born of faith. 
no matter how perplexing or painful the present might be. You feel that? You ever been perplexed or faced pain? No matter how perplexing or painful the present might be, Isaiah was confident that the whole of human history was converging on a single point which had been determined by God in advance. And then God's people would have much to celebrate. Our future is certain because of the power of God and we're able to praise the Lord finally because the Lord alone can make his people a fruitful vineyard and a faithful city. That's all of chapter 27. I summarized the whole chapter in one phrase. Um, The Lord alone can make his people a fruitful vineyard and a faithful city. I want to read this chapter. In some ways it goes future and then it goes back to the present for Isaiah and then it goes future again. So verses um, one through six seem to be thinking more towards the future. Verses seven through 11 sort of come back into the, the present reality and then 12 through 13 go again to the future that is coming in Christ. But let's read uh, Genesis, or Genesis, Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, beginning in verse one. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He has struck them as he struck those, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed in pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Uh, Verse one speaks of this judgment that's coming. It talks about Leviathan. 
He's a fleeing serpent, a twisting serpent, a dragon that's in the sea. It seems maybe that it's, it's the sea and the earth and also the heavens, that he's this serpent that fills all these realms and God's going to crush all of it. It could be Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon are in view. But what's ultimately here is, is that the, the enemies of God are going to be crushed finally, that the Lord with his hard, great, and strong sword is going to punish Leviathan fully and finally. And then we read about this vineyard beginning in verse two. I want to read a, a little bit longer section from Barry Webb just because it's a good summary of, a, of, a, of those first uh, the, the verses two through six. He says this, this song must be read in, li- in the light of the earlier song of the vineyard in chapter five, verses one through seven. A whole series of contrasts is developed. So if you want to do a study this week, go read uh, Isaiah 5 and compare it with uh, Isaiah 27. But in that first, here's the comparison. Chapter 5, no fruit. 27, fruit. No rain, rain. An abandoned wall, it's abandoned, the wall is removed, and now this, this vineyard is guarded by God. Before there's thorns and briars, and now there's no thorns and briars. In chapter 5, it's overrun. And now it spreads out and fills the whole earth. The web goes on. He says, in essence, this song announces that eventually the judgment proclaimed in the first song will be totally reversed. Formerly, the Lord was angry with Israel and invited her enemies to overrun her. But the time will come when his wrath against her will be spent. Then her enemies will encroach no more. At the end of the song, the Lord speaks like a lover whose love for his beloved is so intense that he almost wishes someone would attack her so that he might have the satisfaction of defending her. But the impression left is that the nations will in fact choose the wiser course of reconciliation. The song finishes in verse five, but then verse six makes this great reversal plain. The world will no longer invade the vineyard. The vineyard will invade the world, filling it with fruit. Lot there, sorry for the long quote, but just a this beautiful picture. I love that picture too of the Lord in verse four. He says, I have no wrath. I wish that someone would come and, and try to harm my people because I just would love to show them how much I love them by taking that guy out. I would burn up them. I would crush them. I'd march against them. What a beautiful thing that this fruitless vineyard has now turned into this vineyard that fills the whole earth with fruit. That's the hope that we have. As I said, verses 7 through 11, I think, take us back into the present reality that there's some difficulty that Israel has to face. But God's grace fills even their discipline. That, that verse, verse 7, he has struck them as, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Meaning, has God been as harsh with his people as he is with his people's enemies? No. He was gracious to them. He didn't wipe them out. He sent them into exile. He was kind to them. And so too, we know there's difficulty now, but also that God is kind to us. He's patient, and one day he will take us to himself. That day spoken of in verses 12 and 13. There's a day when a harvest is going to happen. And how will God glean his people? One by one. It's sort of this tender picture. Uh, I've never gone... uh, Apple picking. Well, I've done some apple picking, but if you're going to pick apples, you don't shake the tree and have them all come down, do you? You got to pick them one by one and you got to be careful about it. And there's this picture almost that the Lord comes and when he gathers his people, he takes us one by one to himself. That's the the picture. No longer is it a sword, but now it's a harvest. And we've also got not from a sword to a trumpet. 
there's a trumpet that's going to be blown, a call for all of God's people to assemble and to praise him. From all the nations, from the land of Egypt and from Assyria, everyone's going to come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain. We will all come together on the last day. And we will sing. We will sing a song of praise that will never cease. A song that says, Lord, you alone have kept us safe. Lord, you alone satisfy our souls. You alone have opened our blind eyes. You alone do good works. You alone defeat death. You alone have made us a faithful city and a fruitful vineyard. God alone deserves praise for what he has done in salvation. How do we respond? I think we respond by obeying the command of chapter 26, verse 4. Trust the Lord. Trust him. Stop trusting in anything else. Faith in a unique way glorifies God alone because it says I can do nothing. I am humble. I can do nothing, God, to earn my salvation. I can do nothing to satisfy myself. I can do nothing to open my blind eyes. I can do nothing to defeat death, but you have done it all for me, and so I trust you. We trust the Lord now. We trust the Lord for the future. We trust him for the hope that is, that is coming, and that strengthens us in the present. What a beautiful thing to know that there's a, there's a point at which all history is, is coming, and it's a point in which we will be supremely happy if we are in Christ. So we trust him now, we trust him in the future, and we worship the Lord now. We worship him as it says there. We have been gathered from all places to worship him on the holy mountain. We worship him now because one day we will worship him for all eternity. I pray that we would more and more learn to sing the song of praise that will never cease. And we would sing it to the Lord alone because the Lord alone can save us and give us the peace that we are longing for.